L'audit de vos rêves se trouve déjà près de chez vous. Choisissez le modèle qui vous fait rêver et profitez-en immédiatement. Audi s'engage aujourd'hui à vos côtés avec Audi pour vous. Un ensemble d'offres et de services pour vous aider à mieux repartir. En ce moment, jusqu'à 6 mois de loyer vous sont offerts sur une sélection de modèles disponibles en stock. Découvrez l'ensemble de nos engagements Audi pour vous sur Audi.fr. Offre jusqu'à 6 mois de loyer suivant le premier versement offert. Offre LLD à particulier jusqu'au 30 juin 2020 sur 37 mois et 25 000 km par an maximum sur une sélection de véhicules en stock et si acceptation par Volkswagen Bank. Détails sur Audi.fr. Welcome to Tez Podagogy, the podcast about teaching for teachers. My guest for this episode is Dr. Sarah Baker from the Cambridge University Faculty of Education and a researcher in the university's Play in Education, Development and Learning, which is PEDAL Centre. Hello, Sarah. Hi. So as you might have guessed, our topic today is play. So my first question to you, Sarah, is when we talk about play, are we all talking about the same thing? Because it seems that people have very different ideas about what play actually is. That's right. Um, everyone has a different idea about it. There are m as many ideas about play as there are different people in the world, I think. <laughs> um, and in our, in our centre, we often um, are almost put to the challenge of having to define play. I personally take the view that it's not something really worthwhile doing, that there are many different perspectives. Um, there are different types of play. There are different... Uh, contexts for play, there are different uh, features of a person who's playing or being playful. Mm. So there are lots of different meanings to the word and different understandings of it. And I think that they're all, you know, valuable in different ways. So as researchers, are you all looking at it from a slightly different angle? I know your focus is on schools, but uh, as, a, as a centre, do you go into your research with saying, okay, I'm looking at this aspect of play, or are you having an open mind when you go into schools? Yeah, we have to um, be quite clear and focused about what we're studying. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the reasons for that is if we want to know in, in a classroom, for instance, if a playful approach has any effect, then we need to be able to measure it. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you try to measure something, you do have to be very uh, specific and precise about it. Mm -hmm. So in, in our work, we think about play as uh, child-led learning. But there are other people in our center who study play from a totally different perspective. For them, <clears throat> it's, it's about play in the context, for example, of a parent and a child uh, playing together. The child could be very young, as young as you know, 12 months. Mm -hmm. um, and in that case, the type of play that you're looking at will be very different than okay, yeah. in a classroom. And I guess that transposes to older groups because you don't just work, you know, the, the uh, insinuation, I guess, or the suggestion about play is that it's something for the lower years of primary, but from the interview you did with us a, a few months back, you were talking about play as something that is for all school ages. So does, does what you're looking at in terms of playfulness or child-led learning change as the age groups get um, higher? I think it has to because um, the nature of... of human development mm. dictates that things change you know as time goes on our brains change uh, our bodies change our experiences change but there is a lot of continuity at the same time so I think um, on the one hand yes things adapt and evolve but on the other hand it's not totally different we're still the same person we were when we were born we're just growing yeah so your approach might be different uh, so an example of playfulness at EYFS, for example, might be um, creating a car wash to, to do, you know, a customer customer uh, business sort of scenario where you're doing transactions and, you know, uh, 
accounting and numeracy and literacy as part of that, but at a secondary level that might be role play, for example, or, or something similar? It could be role play, it could be um, projects. Mm -hmm. So um, in secondary you might see <clears throat> a classroom where students are building a robot or they're entering a competition, you know, a science competition with other schools or something like that. And that would be very much learner-led learning. Mm -hmm. So we might not say child-led anymore, but it's still learner-led. Um, based on their interests and their own motivations, but with you know particular learning outcomes that have been thought about in advance. Uh, so I guess many teachers would be quite shocked to seeing that as play, uh, seeing it as in, in part of that definition of play. What, how, how is it playful, do you think? that is it be just because a child is, is, is learning that, uh, leading that learning, or is, is there a playful element to running your own project? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose you're, you're kind of pushing me to define play a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> um, and as I said, when I think about it, I think about it mostly in the context of classrooms um, when the way, we, the way our brains develop, what we know about learning in, from neuroscience is that um, the learner brings a lot to the table. And so when I say I'm interested in learner-led learning, what I mean is I'm interested in um, teaching and classrooms that uh, fit the way we know the brain develops. So it's not a blank slate. It's not the case that you can just throw a bunch of ideas at a, at a learner and they'll just soak them up and that's it. Yeah. Um, they actually come with lots of constraints and um, you know strengths and so on and so forth that they bring to it. So mm -hmm. um, that's, that's the sense in which when I say something is playful and learner-centered, I mean that it's something that fits the way mm. we know the brain works. Like a player of so, ideas almost. It's, uh, it's a different sort of play to what we think of, you know, sitting down playing buckaroo or, um, you know, those sort of, sort of uh, home-based sort of ideas of play, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you can think about um, playing with words, playing mm. with ideas, being what I would call um, cognitively flexible. <laughs> <laughs> those are forms of play, yeah. just as playing video games. It may not look like, you know, always a very joyful activity. I've seen um, <laughs> uh, people who are very, very concentrated and take it very seriously, but we would still call that playing. It's, it's a form of play. So mm. there are lots of different types of play, actually. And people also sort of club together play and fun and think that play has to be something that's fun or that if you're trying to be playful, then you're, you're trying to be fun. Can those two be separated out? I mean, in the computer games example, I guess <laughs> it's, it's, it's an example of that. Right, and and it kind of comes back to something as a psychologist that I like to I like to think about, which is this idea that um, what's happening in the person's mind is really interesting. So it may not look like it has um, you know the appearance of fun. <laughs> For example, my husband playing his video games on the sofa, you know, really intensely focused. If I, if I just sat down with a kind of checklist and said, well, is he smiling? No. Is he laughing? No. You know, it may not have the appearance of fun, but if you ask him, are you enjoying yourself? Mm. Internally, he's having an experience that is enjoyable. So I guess my point is that just looking at someone's behavior doesn't tell you everything. It's also about the experience they're mm. having from their perspective. And you work with a lot of teachers in, in the work you do, you do and you know, 
I, I believe you've got a panel of teachers even that you test, you know, you help and test your theories out with. Do they all come with the similar approach to play? Do they, are they all play advocates as such, or do you have cynics within that group? And, you know, do you, do you have people who, by nature, are quite against the idea of play in a classroom? Because of the work that we were doing in our first year, mm -hmm. um, and as you said, we com constituted this panel, I mean, they were all volunteers, so they were people who were interested, uh, you know, from the beginning in yeah. the idea that play may have a place in their classrooms. Having said that, they weren't all play advocates by any stretch. Mm. There was a big range um, in the group that we, we've been working with. And another point that's really interesting is, is some, some other work that we're doing in, in other countries. For example, we have a project in Ghana where um, we've looked at side-by-side side what teachers say about play and what they think the oh, role of play might be, and then what's actually happening in their classroom. Yeah. So just because somebody believes that play is important for learning doesn't necessarily mean that they use those techniques in their class on a regular basis. And that could be for lots of reasons. Maybe they want to, but their um, head of school doesn't encourage it, or maybe parents don't expect to see that when they come into the mm. classroom, and they would be disappointed if the kids weren't just rehearsing the alphabet. Yeah. Um, or because teachers believe these things are important and would like to do it in their class but don't really have the techniques to do so. Mm -hmm. So I think that's another thing that's really interesting is the, the difference between what people's perceptions are and what they actually do in their classroom. Are quite different. Yeah. So we have some really knowledge, uh, direct instruction style teachers who actually might be more playful than they might imagine themselves being in the classroom. Yeah. And perhaps some play advocates who might, might not actually be playful as they like to think. Right, because I mean, it takes it takes skills, and it takes not just practice, but it takes um, you know thinking about, as I was saying earlier, the role of the child in their own learning, mm -hmm. thinking about what that means, what is learning, yeah. <laughs> and so all these kind of big questions, which are always underlying teachers' practice, but they don't always have the opportunity to think explicitly and reflect on those questions. Mm -hmm. And would you say that at the moment, then, in in the British school system, EYFS is the purest? sort of form of using play to teach in the sense it's all child initiated learning um, I have you know we've run many features from EYFS experts and, and the amount of detail that goes into planning play and the planning time is is extraordinary really and how they can not control play I guess but they, they call it then they're playing alongside um, mm. the children is that is that best practice do you see as bad practice there as you see in older years or, is, or have we got it about right with EYFS at the moment I think the intentions in the EYFS um, framework are very closely matched to what we know about child development. Mm -hmm. it's, oh, it's sometimes challenging to translate that to practice you know, on a regular basis, mm -hmm. every single hour of every single day. Yeah. Um, there will be days when, well, they're just messing around uh, you know, outside and they're not necessarily learning a whole bunch from that. That's, that happens. Not all play is learning. Um, so I think you'll see I think you'll see a variety of of practice there. We certainly saw that um, when we were talking to the teachers on our panel, who would go away and try things and then come back and discuss in the group, and kind of go back and forth between this reflection and their practice and thinking about the challenges they faced. I'm sure that the ideal is that lots of detailed planning goes into every session, but that's not always easy when you're thinking about 
following the children's interests. So one of the challenges that they expressed to us was that if they want to plan, for instance, something as simple as having all the materials mm. that you might need, um, it takes a little bit of trying different ways of doing things before you can get that right. So yeah. for instance, teachers found it easier to um, to plan an initial session to find out what the children's ideas were and then to come back whether it's a day or a week later having gathered those materials yeah. and kind of doing it incrementally okay. um, because within one session it would be almost impossible to know where it was going to go and have having anticipated everything mm. um, to be so able to follow them. It's incredibly complex then really and, and quite time intensive in terms of getting this right. I mean we know as you say the if the research says this is an approach and but the practical side of that coming in says well teachers are actually going to have to have the time uh, and the space, I guess, to, to make it really work in a classroom environment, which yeah. perhaps they don't have at the moment. Well, and that's another thing that I, I, I found from our discussions with this group of teachers, at least, that varies a lot mm. between schools. So some schools have quite strict timetables, and teachers would say have to, you know, stop at 10 o'clock, whatever they're doing, because they need to move on to do maths. Mm. Um, whereas other schools may not have that same kind of rigid timetabling for every single classroom. Okay. And that's the kind of thing that can make a difference, whether you want to stop the kids in the middle of something that they're really excited about exploring and learning from in order to move on to the next thing, yeah. or whether you have the flexibility to kind of carry on, say, for another hour and come back to this other thing later on when it better suits the needs of the children. It sounds quite an empowering thing for teachers. So, like, you know, teachers at the moment talk a lot about the constraints of the curriculum and the constraints of the uh, teaching to the test. Whereas it sounds like if, if, they, uh, if they had the room to embrace a play approach, it would be very, you know, it's a very autonomous, uh, reactive approach for a teacher where they can use their full set of skills, but very, very difficult. Yeah, I think it is. I think it's, it, you know, it would require... Um a lot of experience, as I was saying, but not just it's not just about trial and error. It's mm. also developing specific techniques and skills that can be learned from other people who are doing this. Um, but I do think it's empowering. I think the teachers that we worked with found it um, very energizing. They found it challenging. Well, any change, any potential change in practice, however big or small, is going to be challenging. Mm. Um, but even just trying these kinds of approaches out a little bit more here and there throughout the week uh, really forced the teachers to think about their own role. You mentioned earlier in EYFS some um, experts talk about uh, playing alongside, alongside yeah. right? So it's the idea of becoming a learning partner mm. for the children or the learners of whatever age, um, which challenges the way we think about the role of the teacher. You know, mm. traditionally, teachers are the ones who have the knowledge. And the learners are the ones who are supposed to receive it. <laughs> yeah. So the whole dynamic is is different when you take this playful learning approach. Do you think it's applicable then for a teacher who wants to take a direct instruction approach, which is very much, um, here's the knowledge you need, I'm going to lecture you in a very engaging way, and you know, and this is how the best way to impart knowledge is I'm going to talk to you, we're going to discuss it. Can that still be playful? Is the delivery of that potentially playful and or do they have to as you said recognize that those students set before them are all bringing their own knowledge to the, to the process and unless that sort of symbiotic relationship I guess is acknowledged then, then they're never really going to reach that, that playful state of, of teaching. Mm. 
I would guess that most teachers do think about what's in the kids' minds mm. already, right? That's, um, you know, or at least good teachers are thinking about that all the time. Um, one thing that I think it's important to bear in mind is that we don't really know when playful learner-led approaches are most beneficial mm -hmm. and when, you know, where the limits of that are. Okay. So I'm not going to sit here and say that we have to all adopt playful approaches because it's the best thing in the world and otherwise we'll never learn anything and everything else is rubbish. That's not <laughs> at all what I'm trying to say. I think what, what we believe is important is that there's more research on this because there are a lot of perceptions and conceptions of the role of play um, but without having a research evidence base for when it's most beneficial and when actually another approach is better, we can't really, you know, know what the best thing is. So, for example, um, there is some evidence that if you want children to learn something very specific, then taking a learner-led approach is going to be less efficient and perhaps less effective. Yeah. <laughs> they, they may either take a lot longer to learn it or never get to that particular point that you had in mind. Mm. Um, so there, so if that's the goal, if it's a very specific goal, then maybe it is better to just tell them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, then, and then of course check whether they understood and do all of those normal things. But there, So there will be cases where um, learner-led approaches aren't necessarily the most efficient or effective. Mm -hmm. However, as soon as we start to have that conversation, it forces us to think about what our learning objectives are, what we want them to be, mm -hmm. if we want them to be very specific pieces of knowledge, fine. If we want to have learning objectives that are more about developing learners as learners, as lifelong learners, with uh, problem-solving skills, with um, you know social skills, with these broader skill sets, then then we can start to look at these other kinds of approaches and say maybe maybe they are more effective and there is there is some evidence that that might be the case so it seems to be where you know a good rounded education might be a combination of a variety of techniques to develop different aspects but it goes back to the question you said you know what do we want out of an education yeah. um you mentioned research there as well and like a lot of grand pronouncements are made about play and you know this is less effective or you know we shouldn't we shouldn't be being playful or that play causes a um, causes difficulties in terms of behavior management how much do we actually know about play i mean obviously the def defining play creates problems in terms of the research but from what's out there can any sort of solid pronouncements be made about how effective play might be or how disruptive it might be I wouldn't say there are any solid pronouncements now. I mean, the field of play research is, is budding and growing, mm. but there isn't a lot of really solid, um, you know, consistent evidence that's been replicated in different contexts and so on. So it's a little bit patchy. What I can say about the question of behavior management is that um, the teachers we've worked with certainly have found that as soon as they started trying to take a more uh, learner-led approach, um, they realized that there were skills that the children needed to have in order to engage with that. Okay. So, for example, um, the kids need to know how to have constructive conversations together. Yeah. <laughs> if kids can't talk to each other and work in groups in, in a way that benefits everybody in the group, then that's going to be a barrier, and that's nothing necessarily to do with 
the ultimate thing we're trying to do, but it's almost like a prerequisite. Yeah. So we found the teachers were coming back to some of those basics and working on those things in order to give the kids that foundation to engage better with these approaches. Um, so, so things like group work and um, you know dialogue and how to have conversations and those social skills yeah. um, became even more important for the teachers to work on. It's interesting that play might be getting a bad reputation mainly because the basics of how you do play aren't, aren't in place. So the sort of the, the, the process is being tarnished by essentially the nuts and bolts of getting it right. And if we got those bits right, then we could properly judge whether play is effective. It's being sort of tarnished by, you know, it's like judging direct instruction by someone who does poor explanations. For exactly. Example. So it's, it's a. It seems slightly a, a, a mismatch, I guess. Yeah, that's that's that's. I think that's a really good point. Another thing that's important to bear in mind is that um, not all children will necessarily be able to engage very effectively with this kind of approach. So there may be children who have um, special educational needs. There may be kids who, uh, for whatever reason. Um, maybe they don't have the language skills because they're, you know, English is, is a new language to them. Mm. Um, so there's, there's all these kinds of, as you say, other reasons that may make it challenging for kids to engage with this. Um, some of those, of course, can be addressed, you know, as a whole class with the teacher working on things like group work um, techniques. Mm. And others will be specific to individual children who need, you know, more support and the more learner-led approaches may be more challenging for those particular kids. Mm. And another area that I know causes a lot of um, debate is is when children leave EYFS and go into year one, and it can be a, an abrupt bump into a more structured, if you like, if you want to call it that, or certainly a more um, less playful <laughs> approach in year one. In your in your work with teachers, is that a um, is that a nature of just trying to get re children ready for tests? Is that because, do some see it as, well, right, we're now getting on with the business of learning, we've, we've, they like coming to school, now we can get on with the serious stuff? Or, or is there something more subtle going on? Or how is that shift sort of perceived, I guess, by yourself and the teachers you work with? Yeah, it was really interesting because we had, we had um, reception and year one teachers in the same room mm. talking to each other about these very same things and their experiences in their classrooms. Um, and we didn't expect, I mean, I suppose we anticipated that there would be a difference, mm. but we didn't expect how much of a difference there would be. And it turned out to be really fruitful because um, the reception teachers tend to work together and the year one teachers tend to work together, but they didn't have a lot of opportunities to work across years. Mm -hmm. And so this was a chance for them to learn from each other. So reception teachers were thinking more about, um, you know, the lesson planning approach and the kind of more... Um, goal-oriented planning that the year one teachers were doing and the year one teachers were thinking more about the child-ledness if that's a word yeah. um, and the opportunities for using children's interests to drive some of their lessons so they were kind of um, inspiring each other and taking pieces from both sides really to try and break down that transition which, which can be quite tough and I guess the trouble is as well you you know, in EYFS you have a child who's just turned four and a child that's just turned five. And even in EYFS, I mean, is there anything developmentally that means that that older child, or, or perhaps it's not an age thing, perhaps they're further along in their learning process or their learning journey, as, as it were, do they want a, a less playful approach? Do they need a more direct approach? Or is there nothing really in biology, if you like, or neuroscience that suggests there is any sort of 
right way of learning at right ages? Well, that's a huge question. Yeah. <laughs> that is yeah. the question. Yeah. Um, I mean, if anything, so what we know about how the brain develops, there are huge shifts um, all throughout the preschool years and right up really till the age of about six. Uh, every, you know, every month, things are changing radically. Any parent of a young child has seen that. So it's true that throughout the reception year, kids are experiencing a lot of changes in the way they experience the world. Mm -hmm. um, and then teachers will be seeing a lot of changes in those kids. I would say, if anything, kids need more structure um, you know, as they're younger because their brains are um, kind of a bit bonkers. And, <laughs> you know, they do, they do have certain expectations about the world and they're looking to learn certain things and they're hardwired for certain things. Mm. Um, but that kind of pruning process is still ongoing. I mean, it carries on, you know, forever basically, but especially in those early years right up to the age of six. So I would say in terms of the scaffolding that not only parents but also teachers can offer and even peers can offer to each other you know they're going to need more of that the the less wired up their brains are so if anything it would be a way of saying like let's release a little bit the constraints as they grow older oh, wow. and still provide you know you have to provide age appropriate scaffolding yeah. but the more the brain uh, can make sense of the world on its own, perhaps the more playing alongside can happen and the less guidance and, well, direction they should need. I mean, that's kind of a big, like, theoretical it's interesting position, but it's, in it's thought-provoking. Yeah, and I guess the terminology is interesting because where a secondary teacher might, you know, say, well, I'm not playing alongside my children, but if, like you've spoken about, you know, the multiple definitions of play, and if you force a secondary teacher to say, well, what do you actually mean by being, playing alongside your children? Because that can mean multiple, multiple things, right? So uh, secondary, as you say, if, if this child is, or teenager, if you like, is bringing certain things to the table and you play with them in a different way, I mean, is terminology a bit of a, of a barrier in that sense? Do we need to stop saying play? <laughs> uh, I... I don't use the word that much in my actual day-to-day -day work because okay. I think it's I think it means a lot of different things for a lot of different people. Mm. Um, it's a little bit like a doctor talking about health. Okay, we yeah. kind of generally know what it means, yeah. but if you want to be specific and you're talking to a specific patient about something, you're going to talk about the specific thing that they're they've come to you with, yeah, right? Yeah. You're not going to talk generally about health all the time because it could be just uh, too vague. Yeah. So that's why personally I think the word play, I mean, it's it, it's a catch-all and it, it means a lot of things to everybody. <laughs> but when we're trying to really make headway on the questions of where the evidence is and what kind of teaching practice we should adopt, I think it's important to try and be more specific. Mm. And so, okay, what, what are you, what's your sort of current research project, project you're working on and what, what, where's your focus at the moment? At the moment, we're interested in the techniques that teachers can use working with children mm -hmm. um, to support their autonomy, well, the children's autonomy, although it may turn out, as you pointed out earlier, that yeah. that also supports the teacher's autonomy yeah. in their teaching. Um, techniques that they can use to support problem solving in children. Mm -hmm. And um, ultimately, we would hope that these 
approaches benefit children's love of learning in the long term? Because that's, I mean, I think a lot of teachers would agree that's really the ultimate. If you can get kids all the way through their education and at the end they still want to learn, (laughs) then that's great. Or even, you know, this week, if they still want to learn when they leave the classroom and they go home, then that's fantastic. We've done our job. Yeah. So those are the those are the things we're thinking about specifically with teachers um, in their really their moment to moment interactions with kids. At the same time, we're looking at a more kind of macro level in the classroom. So, as I said, things like the timetable, um, structural questions of the materials that are used. Are materials open ended or are they designed for a specific purpose? Mm-hmm. How does that affect you know how how much the children can do and, and um, lead and explore and create their own learning opportunities. So there's that macro level, and then there's the very specific moment-to-moment interactions that we're thinking about as well. And as a, as a researcher then, is your, I mean, are you going out to prove a thesis that play is important, or are you equally prepared to come to the conclusion that actually maybe play is not the thing for formal education? I mean, how open-minded do you have to be? I'm very open-minded and I think even in some of the projects that are um, just coming to completion now, so the Pedal Center has been going for a couple of years, but we've had students funded by the Lego Foundation who fund the Pedal Center uh, even for a few years before that. So some things are coming to completion already and the findings are mixed. I mean, it's not, like I said, it's not the case that Mm. as long as they're playing, they're learning. (laughs) It's not a blanket Um, statement that I'm trying to make. What I think we're trying to do is to encourage people to be a little bit more nuanced and to think a little bit more about the role of the child in their learning, the role of the teacher in their learning, and what the particular objective is, whether it's that day or that month or that year, and what approaches might be most appropriate. And, And just like play isn't the best way for everything, nor well, it's unlikely that direct instruction is either. Mm. And I guess my last question then is, in, when you're talking to students and teaching yourself, are you a playful teacher? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. <laughs> and um, I try to always question the way I'm teaching. What, I mean, what we try to do is, for instance, we're starting a new undergraduate program well, our, our first students come next week okay. in education, psychology, and learning um, in the Faculty of Education at Cambridge. And one thing that we've done is we've completely revamped the first year of this course from what we used to do so that there is a lot more practical work. And the very first um, three hours, actually, that the students are going to have is going to be all practical work. Okay. So it's going to start from the perspective of where where they're coming from, what their interests are, what their beliefs are, and um, you know how in an active way they can be actively engaged in their own learning. So we'll raise a bunch of questions and then go into the, the more formalized input based on research evidence, et cetera, which so is a little bit more yourself, traditional. <laughs> perhaps the next year. We're, we're, yeah, we're trying, and I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be blogging about it alongside the students. Oh, okay, well, um, is that, can, so that will be open to everybody, that blog? or uh, Maybe maybe next year. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna, it's a trial in the first year, so we'll see how it goes. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your time today. I think it's been really interesting. Thank you. This has been Cheers. great.